Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Monday, October 24th. This week marks eight months since the start of the war in Ukraine. We discuss the current state of the Russian invasion and get some insight as to what may come next in the conflict with David Hastings Dunn, Professor of International Politics from the University of Birmingham in England. Could it be that a product many women use on a regular basis could lead to an increased risk of cancer? We get the disturbing details on a study surrounding chemical hair straighteners from Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Should companies strive to be more proactive rather than reactive when it comes to the mental health of employees? And how can employers foster resiliency in the workforce? We talk about it with Dr. Ryan Todd, CEO of Headversity. And finally, do you have more fruitful conversations talking to the wall than with your teen? We catch up with social worker and therapist Bonnie Kelly for tips and tricks to help you have meaningful conversations with the teens in your life. After eight months, is it time to negotiate with Russia and offer President Putin a way out of this war with Ukraine? Joining us to talk about the situation in Eastern Europe is David Hastings Dunn, Professor of International Politics in the Department of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Birmingham. Good morning to you, Professor. Thanks so much for joining us. Good afternoon from here. Appreciate your time. After eight months of war, do you think, is there an appetite for negotiations with Russia and maybe offering, you know, a so-called off-ramp to Putin? Well, there certainly is a lot of suffering on all fronts, uh, and indeed uh, in the, the cost of living in Europe and elsewhere. Uh, uh, however, the, the, the problem with, with uh, a negotiating solution is that both parties to this war uh, don't want to, to en- engage in negotiations seriously t- towards uh, the, a, any uh, aspect of compromise because both sides think they, c- they can benefit more by continuing to fight. As far as the Ukrainians are concerned, uh, th- they see that the military gains that they've made uh, in South and, and the East uh, the, the, with now Western equipment and their resolve and, and, and their, their, their sense of belief in themselves as a nation, they, they want to push the Russians out of their country. Uh, therefore, they don't want to, to uh, do anything to concede territory that, that, that they regard as rightfully theirs. As far as Russia is concerned, uh, they believe that by uh, bombing uh, Ukraine's infrastructure, by destroying its electricity supply, by freezing it out this winter, they believe that, that ultimately that the, the West will buckle by the pressures that, that the, the uh, cutoff of, of, of gas to Europe means and that they will prevail. So neither side at this stage, sees negotiation as more attractive than fighting. And then the, the wider problem uh, is that actually uh, what Russia wants uh, is, uh, uh, in terms of the, the war, uh, is, is it far exceeds any concessions that the West can give. But Biden talked about an off-ramp, but actually uh, uh, stopping Ukraine joining NATO, perhaps you know, letting um, Russia hang on to, uh, to the Crimea, those things are, are not enough to actually satisfy the beast of the, that is Putin's Russia. And as a, as a consequence, there's no obvious off-ramp, even if there was a desire to move in that direction. I think there's no secret to Russia's imperialist aims, the desire to bring neighboring Slavic-speaking countries under that Russian banner. And, and that has not really changed since the Cold War. But do you think we were kind of taken off guard, the West and sections of Europe, uh, with the fact that this wasn't going to happen again in our lifetimes? 
Undoubtedly. Uh, I, I think that, that the, uh, the, the response in 2014 uh, was, was a, uh, a, a weak response when, when uh, at that point they occupied the Crimea. Uh, there was a, the, the, the fact that uh, Europe became dependent on Russian gas, it was seen as, a, as a, 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 a creation of a new economic community, tying them into to our, to our fortunes and their fortunes. There was a, a, a belief that, that uh, Russia w- was, was no longer the Soviet Union of old and that uh, it, it, they would behave reasonably. And what we've seen is, is the, uh, a Russia that's behaved uh, anything but that in terms of the ideology being spouted uh, by Russia about the, the need to bring all Russian-speaking peoples, wherever they live, whatever they think, under his empire, uh, shows a, uh, a, a, a type of mentality that we thought we left in the last century. But what we have as a consequence as a state with uh, such imperialistic aims that it's difficult to satisfy those through negotiations. There's nothing that we could offer them that would necessarily satisfy them. And as a consequence of that, we're in the situation where the fighting seems to have little prospect of ending. Uh, I I know you have the gift of looking into the future, so we'll ask your thoughts on this. How do you see this conflict ending, given both Ukraine and Russia are prepared to just continue fighting till the end? How do you think this is going to uh, uh, ultimately wrap up? Well, the, the, we I talk about this with colleagues all the time, and, and there, there is no consensus because there, there is no obvious answer to it. Uh, it, it could end by a change of regime in, in Russia that, that, that Putin is, is removed. But then, of course, then again, it's possible that Putin could be removed by someone who actually uh, is is worse than him in terms of, of, of their willingness to use greater levels of force than Russia has used at the moment. It could end uh, by f- further escalation and drawing the line at that point, but that's extremely dangerous. Uh, or it, it, it could end by the collapse of, of Russia economically. Um, or it could end if, if uh, you know, Republicans win the, the, the uh, Battle of Congress in the autumn and they cut off funds to, to Ukraine. That's also a, a possibility and Ukraine is forced to, to, to concede for those reasons. There are many possible uh, outcomes to this. None of them are obvious and none of them necessarily are, are, um, are very easy to come to or, 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 and possibly many of them are, are very unattractive. Very interesting time. And again, hard to believe it has been eight months as of today. Thanks for your time, Professor. We appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. Bye. That is David Hastings Dunn, Professor of International Politics in the Department of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Birmingham. A new study points to an increased risk of cancer attributed to the use of a commonly used hair care product. For details, we are joined by Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Good morning to you, Dr. J. Good morning. Somewhat scary stuff when you read a headline like this. What can you tell us about this study? Yeah, so this really caught my attention. So, number one, uterine cancer, or what we call endometrial cancer, is not that commonly seen, but it's the commonest uh, gynecologic cancer. So this is important. So this was a study where they tracked 35,000 women or so for a 10-year period. They were aged 35 to 74, and they noticed who got endometrial cancer, and then they looked at the characteristics of those women, and they found that hair-straightening products seem to have a connection, and it would double, at least double the risk of getting this kind of cancer if somebody was using it at least four times a year, as opposed to somebody who had no exposure or who used a hair-straightening product very minimally. So there seemed to be a connection with those chemicals and uterine cancer. 
That's shocking. So, uh, you know, whenever I hear these, I think, well, but, but this product has been approved. So why, how does this even happen? That does, Is it the chemicals that come together to cause an issue? Is it one chemical in particular that they don't really understand but approved anyway? Uh, yeah, and who knows? These are products. These are not medicinal things, right? These are cosmetic products. Um, but what they found out is there certainly are chemicals within these hair straightening products that have uh, effects on hormones, and that's what uh, mm. uh, is the underlying culprit here, is that uh, if you have an effect on estrogen particularly, you might actually up your risk. So what they found out, uh, I mean, you can say there's a parabens, bisphenol A, metals, mm. formaldehyde. There are chemicals within those hair straightening products that actually sound nasty, and they are nasty when it comes to that. But it's a cosmetic, so it would fly under that regulation to some degree. And Dr. J, when you have such a, an incredible, you know, eye-opening, jaw-dropping study, you always, as far as I'm concerned, want to look at this study itself. Uh, how big, how widespread was something like this? This was a good study. So it had a lot of a lot of women were tracked over a, a big period of time. It was American, um, and the community there was a very large representation of Black women, which is good uh, in regards to the diversity of it. Um, I guess the take-home message is. If you are a woman who uses a significant amount of hair straightening uh, agents, like at least four times a year or more, you need to be careful, particularly if you have abnormal menstrual cycle. And this typically would be uh, a woman who has gone through menopause who now all of a sudden starts to have periods again or cycles again. That's a sort of a usually a big tip off that there may be a problem. And that woman should be seen absolutely. This is a very curable cancer but it has to be detected early and picked up and managed. And it's straightening products particularly. It's not hairsprays and stuff that we need Correct. to worry about or that we know of anyway at this point in time, but it's straightening so, yeah, products. So this appear to be very specific to hair straightening products, which I guess are fairly potent. These are not, you know, very mild uh, things. So I guess the straightened hair takes a fair bit of uh, chemistry. Now, I don't know much about this. If you know what I look like, I'm the last person to talk to about <laughs> hair straightening, but that's another story. So do we stop using them now? Well, I would be extremely careful or look at the products you're using. Is there something that doesn't have some of these chemicals? I'm, this would be difficult, though, as a consumer to sort of what's in the product I'm using and is this one safe or is that one not safe? So it raises a big red flag. So mm -hmm. I would be very, very careful with these products. That's all we can say from a medical point of view. Okay. And again, underscoring, you have to be your own health advocate Oy. and be on top of these things, I guess. Uh, and that's why we have you here for your weekly advice. Thanks so much, Dr. J. Hey, you betcha. That's Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family but physician. How many people are using those products? How well, many women are using them? Maybe, maybe guys use them too. I don't know, but I know probably a majority of my friends use some sort of hair straightening product. Well, yeah, and it, it does to do with the uter uterine cancer, as he mentioned. I did mention earlier, maybe men or women both using it, but who knows? I mean, maybe the study was focused more so on women. For sure, because it's changing hormones. Yeah, but the most shocking part to me was when he said four times, and I, th I thought he was going to say maybe four times a week, four times, four times a year. Yeah. That sounds incredibly low to me. What do I know about how often people are straightening their hair? But, boy, that does I'm not sound like using it much. For people who have curly hair, they're straightening their hair every single time they wash their hair. That, that could be the case, right? Wow. So pay attention, know what you're doing, read the uh, ingredients on everything. can companies build a resilient workforce and build a team that addresses the mental health needs and concerns of their staff? Joining us to discuss is the CEO of Headversity, Dr. Ryan Todd. Good morning to you, doctor. Thanks so much for joining us. 
Good morning. Thanks for having me this morning. First off, for those who don't know, explain a little bit about what Hedversity is. Hedversity is a uh, workplace mental health program, and it focuses on preventing uh, bad outcomes, safety outcomes, mental health outcomes in the workplace. Uh, and the, the name, the namesake is Hedversity because we are working with employers and employees to get ahead of adversity through our training. Dr. Todd, uh, we spoke with Hedversity, perhaps it was you even a year, year and a half ago, a couple of years ago. Uh, but I'm wondering, has the need and want for employees to have better access to resources and a, a more stable uh, uh, workplace that is uh, bolstering, if you will, mental health, is, is that increased since the pandemic? It's yeah. Since since last we connected, it's it's been quite traumatic. Um, adversity came into the world just before the pandemic. Uh, I'm a psychiatrist, and I I had seen also a, a dramatic change in the volumes in my clinical practice here in the city, and the 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 workplace has changed so dramatically. The stressors have been exponentially increased, and so have the demands on. A company like ours who are providing uh, preventative mental health supports, resources, and training. It, it's been it's been um, it's been quite a journey throughout the pandemic and beyond. No doubt, doctor. Explain this line because I like it. The future of mental health lives upstream. What do you mean by that? We, you know, in medicine, we we often talk about prevention, and we we like to work upstream of the problem, get upriver, and instead of uh, you know working downriver when the problem has already happened. And that's really what upstream is, is all about. The, the tenants behind upstream are trying to prevent the thing from happening before it happens. You know, as a, as a psychiatrist, I see people nine months too late, six months too late, 12 months too late, uh, and I, we can help them and try and prevent uh, other bad things from happening and improve skills. But wow, would it be awesome? Would it would it be great to have an opportunity from preventing somebody from needing to see me or going on disability or getting burnt out even? So how does this look uh, through the, the I guess vision of headversity? Is this just you know making sure that the benefits are in place, or is this actual programs within an office space to make a difference on a daily basis to people you know working a nine to five? Well, yeah, very few people work in a, a classic nine-to-five anymore, right? It's, it's everything is in a hybrid environment. Uh, so too uh, is our training uh, through adversity. So we we have a mobile application that helps individuals upskill themselves day in day out with content and tools and new ways of of looking at problems in the workplace. Uh, and we have a team-based platform that's help that helps leaders train their teams and employees on skills like mindfulness or mental fitness or psychological safety. Um, and we work a lot with, you know, call it blue collar organizations where, you know, we have 80% of the workforce is in the field, hands on tools and 20% is in the office. Uh, so we've, we've learned very quickly early in the pandemic that we have to provide this training in, in places where people already are and in the flow of work. And, you know, we can't do the, the workshop and the bring in a speaker model that that model is it's gone right and we need to meet people where they already are
Okay, so you have a summit coming up where it's a chance for people to to figure out and learn how to make mental health part of a company culture. It's November 8th. Is it just for sort of uh, owners, business owners, business uh, executives, or is it for, for the employees themselves as well? Employees who are interested in this space and, and prevention should absolutely come, uh, especially if you're in human resources, especially if you are in health and safety. Um, we'll have we'll have leaders from all over North America who are leading the field in preventative mental health. And, you know, mental health touches everything, right? So preventing issues around mental health uh, improves every type of workplace. Um, so it's, it's workplace agnostic, whether you work in a bank or whether you work in construction. This, this is a conference that can really bring the top leaders from around North America to the forefront and help us understand how we can bring prevention around mental health to your company. Good stuff. We're going to give the website upstreamsummit.com and, of course, your website, headversity.com. Thanks for your time, Dr. Todd. We appreciate it. Excellent. Have a great morning. You too. It's Dr. Ryan Todd, CEO of Headversity. They deal with companies like ATB, Shell, the, Detroit, the, names. the Detroit Pistons. Yeah. They're North America-wide do, doing some really important work. And I do like what he said, and not, not just the fact that people are scattered. You might have uh, workers in different areas or in satellite offices or just simply not having been back to the office. That would be the barrier, is saying, okay, we're going to have a speaker in the, the coffee room next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Well, who's going to be there? It's yeah. 2022. You have yeah. to have it maybe not just online at one specific time, but at the time that fits your work schedule. And so, looking upstream, too, I think yeah. is important. Why we're, like, we shouldn't be waiting until it's already happening. Let's get ahead of it. And I love that that's sort of the philosophy of what Absolutely. they're trying to do. This is Motivational Monday, a chance to get you motivated today and beyond. And joining us this morning is Bonnie Kelly, registered social worker and counselor therapist. Good morning to you, Bonnie. Good morning. How are you today? Good. Thank you for spending some time with us. And uh, I speak for parents out there. We need help. Connecting with our teens isn't easy. From their massive use of technology to teen angst, it seems like an uphill battle just having a a regular conversation to find out how they're doing, you know, what's going on in their lives. Um, So we've got you on the line here. And beyond your professional life as a social worker, counselor, and therapist, you have real-world experience as a parent of teens. So tell us about yourself as a parent in the world you're in. (laughs) Absolutely. I have um, four teenage boys. Um, So aside from eating me out of house and home (laughs) constantly, um, they are all very different. um, And there have been many battles and hills to overcome. trying to talk to them do you, they're very difficult yeah do you think bonnie like when it comes to that discussion obviously we need to try and keep track and, and the dinner table seems to be the greatest place but sometimes that's not a, a possibility for everyone so is where we talk to our teens as important as when we talk to them absolutely where you talk to them you know you want to be free from distraction um in a place they're comfortable Sometimes um, in a car when they can't get out and run away from you (laughs) is a really great place to do that. You just want to make sure that they're in a place where they're comfortable too, not just you. So it's considering both sides of that coin. And and when is, you know, maybe give them a break after school or Mm -hmm. if they've had a bad day, give them time to cool down. Bonnie, is is there a way to go in to get an answer other than, how you doing? How was your day? <laughs> are, are there special catchphrases or questions that can actually spark a meaningful conversation? 
Absolutely. It could be, you know, just um, acknowledging how they're looking or how they're feeling. Um, you know, you're looking kind of down today or like you came in the house today with a little extra pep in your step. Um, or it, it might just be, you know, engaging with them about something they like. If they're playing video games, um, even if you hate video games, sit down and fake it till you make it. Show some interest in the things that they love. Um, and that can open the door to many more in-depth conversations and get you the answers you're looking for. Uh, you know, it's funny, um, if, I can't even imagine four boys how much food they must eat and how much milk they must drink. But when I ask my kids, you know, how was school? What did you do at school today? Nothing or I don't remember is always, you know, the answer. So how do we kind of pull a little bit more out of them when that's really kind of their first response for the most part? You know, one thing that's always worked really well is just to make it a little more specific. Um, so it, maybe if they struggle with math, like tell me about math or being aware of what they had going on, like a math test or whatnot, and ask them, you know, Give me two positives and one challenge from today. Really make it special and acknowledge that things aren't always great for them. I think a lot of teens think that we're trying to find out how great their day was or we're prying in their business. Um, and that's why they shut down on us. I think, uh, Bonnie, as much as we want to know about where they're at, I think maybe because we're old fogies and we all know that <laughs> parents don't know anything, as as you know. it's uh, They can get answers from their friends or other adults, but never their parents. You never want uh, you know, uh, advice from your parents that we're we're too far removed to understand where they're at at their life and that interesting time of being independent and autonomous, but still dependent on us. Is that is that part of the issue? Absolutely, they're in this weird place of um, thinking that they need to be completely separate from us, but really, really needing parents um, and their guardians and everyone looking out for them. So it's understanding that they're trying to figure out who they are and where they belong in this world. And respecting that and also knowing that even though they may be uh, yelling at you or pushing you away, um, you may be their very safe person and they still really, really need you. So giving them some patience and some time so they can reach out to the people they need the most while still maintaining that great sense of independence they're building. Yeah, I like that, you know, that we're their safe place. and, And I think sometimes we try to be a little too overbearing perhaps like you know if you don't like the friends of your of your child for example i'm curious and i'm asking for a friend what do you do <laughs> what do you do about that do you say that aloud do you let them know you know the people you hang out with are you know they're going to change your your where you go down your path um it's okay to sometimes allude to that piece kids need to know what you think is apparent, but you want to avoid, you know, any shame or blame. Um, and sometimes as parents, the more we push back, the more they do the very thing we don't want them to do. So stand rooted in the things you've taught them as they've grown in their morals and their convictions. Kids need to make mistakes in order to grow. They need to stumble and fall, you know, to get back up and parents need to be there to, to help them up. Mm-hmm. So, you know, while voicing your opinion is okay, do it gently. Um, do it minimally only when needed. Bonnie, what's interesting when you have more than one in your house, as you have four, I have a couple of teens in my house, and so does Sue, is it's not a one-size-fits-all when it comes to promoting conversation, is it? Because I know that some are going to be shy, some are going to be outgoing. You, you can't really gauge and say this is the exact step to take, can you? No, not at all. You've got to do what works for you. Every single kiddo is so different. My four teens 
I mean, are four sides of a box. Not one of them is the same. Um, and you have to respect them where they're at and do what works for you and what works for them. You know, there's a lot of advice out there for parents and we feel bad when we, you know, seem to be struggling with our teenagers. I think everybody struggles with their teenagers at some time or another. And it's, it's taking some of that advice and take what works for you, modify it how it works for you and leave the rest all behind. Like just release it and listen to your teen and, and listen to that little voice inside and, you'll connect. You know, and I think you touched on it earlier about cell phones too, right? When, you know, if we want them to talk to us, we need to put our phones down. And if we're going to expect that they put theirs down, and that's the only way we're going to have any kind of meaningful conversation with them, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, we are their best models. They watch us. We may not think they do, but they do. So, you know, we're on our phones often as much as they are. Okay, well, maybe not quite as much. <laughs> Close. But... You know, if you want to talk to them, put down your phone. If you want to see them at the dinner table, don't bring your, you know, phone to the dinner table if it's a rule that they don't. You know, really, really model that behavior and give them that space and that time so you can see them and hear them. I, I have these conversations with my wife quite a bit, Bonnie, and then I say, she's, well, did you tell them this? And I say, I do, but they, they don't listen. Mm-hmm. She says, well, you have to let them know. Uh, you know, at least you have to make that effort. Is it a case sometimes just because they don't respond, we think they don't listen, but they're still, you know, sponging and, and, and taking some of this information? Absolutely. You know, sometimes they don't listen or they don't hear because they don't want to. It doesn't suit what they need. But they are listening to everything. They are watching everything. Um, So never, ever, ever stop talking to them. Even when it seems like you're talking to a wall, keep talking to that wall because they're hearing you. They're really, really listening and taking it in. Great advice. Great reminders. Thanks so much for joining us on this Motivational Monday, Bonnie. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Bonnie Kelly, registered social worker, counselor, therapist. You can get more information and talk to Bonnie if you'd like to. KellyCounselingServices.com.